This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton, which ruled that the Title VII prohibition on sex discrimination in employment extends to discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status, may imperil the fundamental right of parents to educate their children in line with their values. This right is examined brilliantly in the 2016 book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education, and Children's Autonomy, by scholar Melissa Moskela. Given the rise of the transgender movement and other aspects of wokeism, this book has only increased in importance. It is a rare combination of a serious scholarly book and a book that general audiences, particularly and crucially the parents of school-aged children, should read. Muscala addresses timely questions such as, can we defend parental rights against those who believe we need more extensive state educational control to protect children's autonomy or prepare them for citizenship in a diverse society? And draws upon psychological and scientific, scientific, social scientific research to make a compelling philosophical argument for the rights of parents to determine fundamental questions of morals when it comes to their children. And this is not only a matter for philosophers. Muskella makes clear that under the cover of such seemingly innocuous verbiage as diversity education and education for citizenship, public schools are engaging occasionally in outright indoctrination of children in left-wing social justice and libertarian moral views. Moreover, some progressives are increasingly targeting even private schools, and some are even calling for an outright ban on homeschooling. Muskella's book is eerily prescient in the way she was able to predict that parents who seek to pass on a traditional understanding of sexuality find their efforts directly undermined in ever more public schools. Many parents cannot afford private schools or are unable to homeschool. And as noted, even those refuges are under threat. Muskella foretold in her book that if the views of the progressive scholars whose arguments she delineates with scrupulous fairness prevail, parents will have no choice but to send their children into an educational environment that may sow damaging confusion about the basic truths of human identity. Readers of this book need need not even be religious, but simply parents and other readers who worry that children will be stigmatized and parents' rights erased if children are forced by schools to deny that maleness and femaleness are grounded on objective biological reality rather than subjective self-image, or that the purpose of human sexuality is not merely pleasure or self-expression, but to unite a man and woman in marriage and enable them to form a family. That is not solely a question of religious liberty, but of conscience rights more broadly, which she discusses both authoritatively and movingly. Muskella examines the arguments for expanding school choice, vouchers, and granting exceptions when educational programs or regulations threaten parents' ability to raise their children in line with their values and moral codes. The questions raised in this important book have become ever more salient in the era of the Biden administration. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Melissa Muskella, author of the 2016 book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education, and Children's Autonomy. Thank you for joining us today, Melissa. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start with two of the phrases in the title of your book. Let's start with civic education. What falls under that rubric, and has the term been replaced or at least rivaled by other newer terms? You discussed the the theories of John Rawls in the book, for example, extensively. 
But given how far left many progressives have leaned since 2016 when your book was published, is Rawlsian thought still as dominant as it once was in progressive circles and in the field of philosophy? What should parents listen for when they hear the term civic education? Is that a very different thing from civics education with, a, with an S on the end of civics? That's a great question. Civic education varies broadly, depend, depending, of course, on who is defining it. Um, as you say, a lot of people hear the term civic education and they think of civics, some very innocuous and important education in the history of our country, basic understanding of our institutions of government and how they work, an understanding of the rights and responsibilities of citizens, and so on and so forth. However, often what gets now folded into civic education is everything that progressive liberals uh, deem to be necessary to form diverse, tolerant citizens who are basically who have basically bought into the progressive woke agenda. So now civic education might include things like pretty barefaced indoctrination in LGBTQ ideologies, for instance. Uh, so just to take one example, in, you know, in California, uh, they have a comprehensive sex education requirement, which doesn't, does have a parental opt-out, but it's only for the, the stuff that's explicitly about sex education. The opt-out mm. is not available for the parts of the curriculum that relate to teaching about gender inclusiveness and gender diversity and things like that, because they think that's not really a matter of sex education. That's an uh, important matter of civic education to teach these children to deal with, you know, growing gender diversity and gender inclusiveness in our culture, right? That's just one of a number of examples of how this can become very broad and go well beyond uh, the teaching of civics and, uh, and appreciation for our form of government. Hmm. It's interesting that they that they they emphasize sex when they're arguing in certain court cases, and otherwise, it, then it becomes a real irrelevant or not not germane to what else is going on. It seems a little inconsistent. Yes, but, there uh, are a lot of internal tensions there, <laughs> to, <laughs> to say funny. the least. <laughs> <laughs> well, you write in the you write in the book, and I'll quote you: "A policy of mandatory Rawlsian civic education would be unjust because it infringes on the conscious rights." and authority of some parents and does not promote a state interest that is compelling enough to justify such an infringement. Since your book was written, there have been several social movements that have arisen, as you just mentioned, and events that have occurred that have focused upon a call for change of consciousness, such as the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, transgenderism, the general conflation of the events of January 6, 2021, with the entire right, and so forth. How are these movements reflected in the idea of Rawlsian civic education, and specifically the ones I just mentioned? Does Rawlsian look tame by comparison with all these calls for an inclusivity that seems to be based on excluding anything traditional or conservative? And you were talking about forcing them to include things, but they're also sort of excluding anything traditional or conservative. Who would be an example of a notable figure who is calling for an aggressive form of Rawlsian who may not even use the term Rawlsianism? Well, uh, there are a lot of of people in you know uh, the legal profession, for instance, uh, very prominent uh, law professors writing in top journals and you know influencing judges uh, all you know all the way up to the Supreme Court, mm. uh, who are calling for again sort of very. I mean, they, they they won't say this explicitly in their articles, but when you read between the lines, what they're calling for is uh, is effectively uh, extremely 
intrusive and controversial uh, programs in in the schools. Uh, for instance, uh, programs that would allow uh, children to transition to the gender of their choice uh, at school while explicitly hiding that from parents at home. And they would, you know, put that under the guise of, say, the privacy rights of children, or they would consider parents who do not want to support a child in a social transition or even a medical transition to uh, another gender. They would, they might consider that abusive or neglectful and would empower courts to completely override uh, parents' decisions on that score. Uh, they would basically empower courts broadly to simply determine what is in the child's best interests and enforce it regardless of what the parents think. Um, in terms specifically of education in the schools, the, the Rawlsian civic education program that you know theorists like Amy Gutman or Stephen Macedo or Eamon Callan and others uh, would be advocating for is, is broad. So they call for things like, you know, exposure to a variety of ways of life and a variety of worldviews, exposure, which is in part meant to provide children with the means to be critical of the worldviews that they're being taught by their parents, and then, you know, potentially to adopt a competing worldview. And, And that would be inclusive of things like a worldview that says that there is no such thing as biological male or female, right? Or, but part of this Rawlsian worldview is also uh, a basic presumption that, you know, in matters of, say, religion, there really is no such thing as truth because reasonable people accept what Rawls calls, you know, the burdens of judgment, which means that on certain controversial matters, you know, there simply uh, can't be truth. And so we need to, uh, humbly accept that and be open to all competing perspectives, uh, you know, and these sorts of things, which again, uh, in the sort of academic language don't sound all that threatening. But then when, when you look at what that means on the ground in terms of children's textbooks and what they're being taught in school, uh, it can indeed uh, very much undermine a child's faith, confuse children about basic matters of biology or their own gender, turn children even explicitly against their parents. Many of these uh, programs in schools now explicitly or implicitly portray parents as the enemy, as the ones that children need to to watch mm-hmm. out for. Yeah, I was going to say, could you could you elaborate a little on the, the the term burdens of judgment? Does that mean that we have a judgment not to judge, or how does it? Where does the term burdens of judgment come from? And could you explain a little bit more about how to interpret it? I mean, I was a little. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not good at at, at, at that, that term. Even sure. though you, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you address no, that's, it that's, well in your book, but yeah, the so so John Rawls talks about this idea that we that reasonable people need to accept what he calls the burdens of judgment, which is this the fact that is uh, in part true that of course we're all fallible, that we all come from a particular context and perspective on something, that we don't have full knowledge, that we can be biased by our own you know background or cultural context or upbringing. And things like that. And so we need to take that into account uh, when dealing with other people with diverse perspectives and, and have a kind of humility in basically recognizing our own fallibility. And that, you know, as far as it goes, that's that's all reasonable. The, the problem with the way 
that concept then sort of cashes out um, in broader Rawlsian thinking is it, it basically amounts to a, a sort of form of relativism that at a certain level, especially on, on issues that relate to sort of moral or religious matters, there really isn't objective truth or there really isn't objective truth that we can know with, with any confidence. So, it, so then, then it amounts to basically inculcating at least a soft form of moral religious relativism. So in other words, if, you, if a parent has a strong view about morals, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a, a, a negative. I mean, that's a fault of the parent for having a strong moral view that is somehow not, not a desirable thing for a parent to, to inflict supposedly on their child. That's right. So, I mean, according to Rawls, you're ipso facto not reasonable if you're not recognizing that your moral judgment about some controversial matter might well be wrong. And if you're teaching your children with confidence that you're absolutely right about a particular matter, for instance. We were talking about earlier, and it's quite shocking, I've heard Ryan Anderson on the the topic of that that schools are actually hiding from parents that that their children that they're talking to their children about about transgender i mean not not transgenderism in general but the personal identity of an individual child and right. not informing the parents which is i don't i i think that's really an alarm bell that i, I really want to drill down on that because that's that's really shocking i, I mean it's amazing that the that the, 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 the privacy rights of the child extend to concealing from the parents that that's happening well they don't yeah. They don't actually, oh, okay. uh, but uh, but people like some of these Rawlsian theorists that I that I mentioned. I mean, they their books are written prior to this kind of new uh, transgender movement, so they don't speak explicitly about that. But some of the more recent law scholars uh, that I've uh, mentioned uh, do talk explicitly about these sorts of things and. And would make the case that that falls under children's privacy rights, but that's actually not not true. The, the FERPA regulations, the Federal Education uh, Rights and Privacy Act, right? That that act actually tells actually tells schools that parents of minor children have the right to know uh, what is going on with their children in schools. Mm. What's happened is that the 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 transgender advocacy groups have been training schools with protocols that enable them to get around the FERPA regulations hmm. and hide this information from parents. So they have protocols for sort of avoiding any use of the child's new name or new pronouns in any official documents to which parents would have access and instead, that's, that's teachers creepy. are instructed only to put that kind of information in personal notes, their personal teacher's notes, which is one of the few things that are exempted from parents' uh, kind of right to be able to, to view them. So they, could, they can keep that from the parents completely. So that, you know, the child could have a change of clothes at school, uh, totally different name, totally different identity in the school, and you know, the whole school would basically be working together uh, to make sure that parents are kept in the dark about this serious gender confusion and struggles that's, that this child really is going shocking. through, which is, um, which is really troubling. Well, well, one thing that's also fascinating in your book is that you make the point that the, the phrase children's autonomy does not necessarily re, re, um, 
connect it is not necessarily solely connected to the idea of of les of of the transgender or LGBT, you know, the, 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 LGBTQ, <laughs> the, the acronym, et cetera. People, yes. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that they, um, that they want to do this in a specific, uh, section of school or this, this will be sex education. So forth. you make the point that in the, um, the, the case of Mozart versus Hawkins, that the, the, the um, I'm just going to read my question that the parents in that, in the most, the 1987 Supreme court, Mozart, Mozart versus Hawkins, the plaintiffs, in this case, parents in Tennessee, we're not objecting material and science textbooks say, but the books that were being used to teach children how to read, that the act of reading itself was being used to, the act of teaching reading itself was being used to push a left-wing object agenda. And it's hard for parents to opt out of a basic skill like reading class. I mean, that's part of education. You also point out that the parents argue, argue that despite all the arguments of the school district about diversity, there was basically no representation of Protestant Christianity in the assigned text. And could you explain how, uh, this the idea that progressives uh, that that doing something like this empowers children from going have from having their moral outlook shaped by parents to having it shaped by teachers, and that the the children's autonomy in this case was actually being rubbish because they were being exposed not to diversity of views, but um, an, a left wing monoculture was being imposed on them. That, there, that the idea that there's diversity is actually not true. That the parents in Mozart were saying. This is not diversity, that we're not being represented and, and Protestant Christianity is not being represented and all these other groups are, which is not fair. Right. So one of the things that the parents in the Mozart case objected to was uh, just how unbalanced the readers uh, that were being used in the school were. It wasn't even that they were just portraying in very sympathetic ways a lot of practices or you know, relativistic beliefs and so on that the, the parents thought were, were wrong, um, but also that there were no positive portrayals of their own way of life, right? No positive portrayals mm. of Protestant Christianity or any form of, of Christianity. And there's just broader evidence of textbook bias across the curriculum. Uh, it's in history textbooks, it's in social studies textbooks. Uh, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's not the kind yeah. of thing that's just in one class or just in a sex education class. I mean, even the stuff about sex and gender pervades multiple elements of the curriculum. It's not confined to any particular course. But beyond that, you know, you have things like uh, Paul Witz, a uh, NYU, uh, New York University researcher, uh, has written a book. Uh, I mean, the book is, is now uh, from a number of years ago, but, you know, even back then from the 1980s, uh, his book, which looks at could you, could you know, you, a bunch you, of... Could you repeat that name just so our listeners get the... Get, I didn't quite catch it, the, the name of the scholar? Sure. Paul Witz is the name of the, uh, of the scholar. How would that be spelled? V-I-T-Z. Via Witz. Okay, got it. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, you know, he did an analysis of multiple textbooks, social studies textbooks, readers commonly used in schools and things like that. And he found that those materials were practically devoid of any references to God, any positive reference to Judeo-Christian Judeo belief, any positive reference to traditional family roles, any mention of marriage. Um, but on the other hand, they were full of very favorable references to American Indian religions, Buddhism, Eastern mysticism, the occult. Uh, numerous references to role models reflecting non-traditional family structures, and so on, yeah. right? Um, no positive portrayals of what people might call sort of traditional 
values, uh, traditional moral and religious beliefs, and abundant positive portrayals of things that challenge or are different from those things. And that's, and that's a big part of the problem. It's not just that there's diversity, uh, but that there is uh, a basically underlying attempt here, uh, a veiled attempt to sort of indoctrinate children away from these more traditional viewpoints. And if you just think about the way psychology works, what, what appears to you to be normal is what you encounter frequently. Mm. And what you read about frequently, what you hear about frequently, what other people around you talk about frequently or the behavior that they frequently model and exhibit, all of that comes to you to seem normal. And so by not giving any positive portrayals of any of these sort of traditional values or ways of life in mm. school textbooks, it basically comes to make those ways of life seem unusual and suspect. And the ways of life that are portrayed frequently and positively come to be seen as the normal. Mm. So, it, you know, it, it is a, a subtle way of indoctrinating children um, that, you know, has been occurring in the schools for, for decades. And now, of course, it's much worse and it's not subtle at all. Right now, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing things I was telling how, you about. how quickly yeah. it's advanced since your book was published. Yes. Well, one of the most impressive things about your book is, as you were just quoting, I believe, the, the scholar, was he a social scientist? I mean, he was a psychologist. Paul Vitz is a psychology uh, professor at NYU, yes. Because I was going to say that one of the most impressive things about your book is that you draw on so many fields and so many studies to support your arguments and utilize sources not only from philosophy, but from such fields as child development, neuroscience, psychology, family law, family studies, law, education, and so on. And the work cited in your footnotes, I got a kick out of it. The work, the fo- your footnotes are so wide ranging that some of the footnotes even refer to other footnotes. So this <laughs> is a book that's very, very, um, you know, well substantiated your arguments. When, but I'd like to read what you're just talking about. I'd like to read this passage about sure. autonomy education. And, you, and I'll, re- I'll read this because it was very striking. Autonomy education by its very nature encourages children to be critical of ethical claims or standards based on authority and to trust their own reasoning instead. Education or autonomy could therefore be detrimental even to adolescent children who often lack moral insight and whose reasoning is often still co-opted by the influence of subrational desire to the extent that it undermines the moral authority of parents by encouraging children to criticize their parents' values and offering sympathetic portrayals of ways of life that their parents have taught their children to view as bad. And I just want to mention that as I read that, I thought that it applies not only, the book is not only for conservative Christian parents, but I thought if I were, if it applies to people like, example, immigrants to the U.S. from all parts of the globe, such as Muslim parents from parts of Africa who might not be on board with the wild and free sexual culture endorsed by public educators here. And how do people like Emmy Gutman uh, reconcile their emphasis on the need for education designed to mold children to Gutman's desired form of citizens with the fact that this requires imposition of a cultural conformity that they disdain when is referred to as assimilation by conservatives? How do they reconcile their endless calls for diversity when they, what they want is actual cultural, uniform cultural liberalism? Or am I putting words into your mouth? Or is that basically what Gutman's saying? I want assimilation, but I'm not calling it that. And I want assimilation not to American traditional values, but to the, the, the transgender agenda and so forth. I mean, maybe she's not saying that, but that's a lot of what, what is happening, right? Well, what she's, she's saying, uh, Gutman, as well as again, other people like Eamon Callan and Stephen Macedo, who I discuss in my book. Extensively, what, it's very helpful that you, that you outline their arguments. 
Thank you. Well, yeah, what they're, what they're saying is that uh, in order to raise children to be good Rawlsian citizens, which is what they mean, they think any good, a good citizen has to be a Rawlsian citizen, has to be somebody who has learned to appreciate the burdens of judgment, as I said before, has to uh, avoid relying on their comprehensive religious or moral views when voting or when sort of publicly advocating for policies in the public square and so on. Yeah, they're not um, even and, allowed to discuss it in the public square, right? <laughs> you can you can discuss, but once as long as once you're sort of in the realm of attempting to impose anything coercively on other people by sort of proposing legislation or voting for legislation, then they argue that it's uh, a lack of civility to uh, to impose a, a view on which reasonable reasonable people might disagree, uh, and so. So they, they think that children need to be schooled uh, to learn all of these things, to be exposed to a broad range of diversity, to appreciate that diversity, to be critical of their own perspectives so that they then acquire these habits of, of good Rawlsian citizens. And so that's basically how they justify their view is, that, well, this is necessary for living in a liberal democracy that fully respects everybody as free and equal citizens, which on their terms means that we ought not to coerce anybody to do anything, um, that they, uh, that it wouldn't be reasonable uh, to expect them to agree with. In a July 29, 2020 piece entitled, in the Daily Signal, entitled, Supreme Court Imperils Parents' Right to Pass Their Values on to Children, you wrote the following. Insofar as Bostock is interpreted, perhaps mistakenly, as affirming that sex is determined by a person's inner sense of gender identity rather than biology, parents of gender-confused children may find themselves unable to protect their children from the gender-affirming path of social transition, puberty blockers, and eventually cross-sex hormones and surgery. Never mind that the vast majority of gender-confused children naturally come to accept their biological sex if allowed to undergo puberty, or that the gender-affirming path has not been proven to resolve gender dysphoria in the long run and results in permanent loss of fertility and serious long-term health risks. Such arguments were of no avail to the Ohio parents who lost custody of their teenage daughter because they would not allow her to begin hormone treatments to transgender to a male gender identity. The combined legal and cultural impact of Bostock threatens to make such tragic cases increasingly common. Uh, it's almost uncanny how your book laid arguments, uh, laid out arguments being made on both sides of issues like this. Have you been surprised at how quickly the transgender movement has flexed its muscles in the area of public policies and in public school classrooms in the few short years since 2016 when your book was published? And have you gotten any feedback from parents and lawyers who have read your book? I am actually surprised at how quickly the, the gender ideology has taken off. I mean, it's certainly uh, already when my book was published, it wasn't it wasn't news that ideology in terms of the you know gay and lesbian uh, groups was very strong in the public schools and uh, you know post Obergefell of course same sex marriage became the law of the land and teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman became you know in some circles tantamount to to bigotry seen as as bigotry. And, you know, that was reflected in, in school curricula. But the idea that this, at that time, basically unknown phenomenon, a phenomenon that a few years ago uh, affected, you know, 0.002 to 
percent of the population, according to our statistics, has now become extremely widespread, uh, arguably in part because it's being fostered actively, not just in the schools, but also online. And, uh, and children are just being often taken in by a lot of these trans influencers uh, on YouTube and, you know, blogs and, and other sites online where, you know, now you just have situations where children who are just going through the confusions that are normal to go through when they hit puberty or who just feel that they don't fit in or that they're a little bit different or they're socially awkward, all of a sudden they hear testimonies of a child who claims to be transgender or perhaps an older adolescent uh, at a school assembly and they think, oh, I identify with this person because I also have had trouble fitting in for many years and this must be my problem, right? And they find a kind of excuse for all of their ills in this new transgender identity and it becomes a cause of celebration and all of a sudden they become cool and popular because now instead of being, you know, the socially awkward, um, not popular girl, they're now the trend, the trendy trans boy uh, or whatever it is. Right. And, and it just, it becomes a kind of social contagion. So this, this stuff is just taking off in schools fueled by the school's own curricula and being promoted uh, without knowledge of parents and sometimes even explicitly against parents' uh, objections. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the, what the genesis of the book was, because this is, this, is, this is a lot of this has happened since it was written. So I'd like to go back to the origins of, of, your, of your book, which your book, um, as I say, just amazingly, for, it's like you're, like the, you're a fortune teller. You said, this is, this is what, these are the, the arguments that we're going to need in a few years. But was there a particular court case that alarmed you, for example? Did you embark on your doctoral studies with the book already in mind? Or was there a key course in your graduate studies that led you to write it? For example, you mentioned in your book, your graduate advisor and dissertation director, Princeton, uh, the noted conservative legal and political philosopher, Robert B. George, and people you knew at the Madis James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which George directs, such as Sharif and Gabriel Gerges and Zena Hitz, whom I've had the pleasure of interviewing for the New Books Network. And such figures you mentioned in the in the in your uh, acknowledgments, figures such as John Finnis, Gerard Bradley, and Christopher Tollefson. That's a pretty impressive roster of people that, that you that you work with. Could you yes, I've been very of, fortunate to have to have great mentors and and colleagues and friends. Well, yes. it's, it's very touching. I th I think that's one of the most touching acknowledgments. I wish I wish I'd been your teacher because I think that would thanked and so 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 profusely. So, um, you say about Professor George, for instance, that I'm grateful to him in particular for challenging me in my intellectual life to plunge without fear into the deep and uncharted waters of philosophical inquiries to which I did not know the answer in advance. And this work is, among other things, a response to that challenge. So what was it that you were surprised by as you embarked on the book? Well, I first really started thinking about the issue of parental rights after reading Stephen Macedo's book, diversity and distrust for a class uh, at, at Princeton. And I remembered being troubled by many of the arguments in the book, arguments like the ones uh, we've just been, been talking about, that, that schools should be much more aggressive in teaching children to be critical of the values that they're learning from their parents at home and be exposed to a broad range of controversial perspectives that will enable them to be uh, autonomous, quote unquote, in other words, to sort of chart their lives has free from undue influence from their parents or their family of origin. And 
I remember reading the book and thinking, well, there's this fundamentally goes against the basic rights of parents as the primary educators of their children. And I wrote a short essay for the class offering some critiques of the book along those lines. And I remember the professor writing in the margins of the essay in response to some line where I, I noted that parents are primary educators of their children. And he just underlined that and said, why? And I thought, that that's a very good question, right? It was something that I firmly believed to be true as just a basic moral principle, something that was also, has also been affirmed constitutionally in in cases like uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters and Myers, Meyer v. Nebraska uh, back in the, in the 1920s and reaffirmed in, in subsequent cases. But the, the more fundamental moral question of why parents are primary educators, not just as a matter of law, but as a matter of justice, as a, as a basic matter of rights and justice, apart from what any positive law might say. Uh, I, I did some research on it, and I realized that nobody had really given a full and convincing answer hmm. to that question. That's surprising. Well, it's not that surprising. So when when you think about it, there are some things that are so basic Mm. that until they're challenged, nobody really thinks it's necessary to give an extended account of the underlying basis of those principles. So, I mean, even just think right now, right? Right now, um, for the first time in human history, there is a widespread challenge to the notion that human beings are male and female, that we Mm. are a sexually binary species, Mm. right? I mean, almost everybody (laughs) throughout human history up until about five years ago would have said, of course, human beings are male and female. I mean, sure, there are these rare cases of uh, hermaphrodites or, 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 you know, people with disorders of sexual development that, Mm. you know, whose, whose actual biological sex is unclear, but those are extremely rare. And, you know, uh, and we understand why they happen because something biologically went, went wrong. But uh, this kind of widespread questioning of the categories of male and female and their biological basis uh, is unheard of, right? So who would have thought even 10 years ago that scholars would have to do serious work to defend the notion that humans are male and female yeah. biologically? Yeah. And not even that they'd have to do serious work, but that scholars who dare to publish such things might, uh, might face charges of, of bigotry and discrimination and find it nearly impossible to get their work published. Absolutely. As we, as we speak just yesterday, Ryan Anderson's book, when Harry, when Harry became Sally has been apparently dropped by Amazon. I, I saw that, I mean, which, is, which, which is, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a thoughtful it's book, very respectful of, all people concerned. In fact, he talks in the book about how really what animated him to write it was his concern for all of these people who are being basically taken advantage of by uh, a medical community that is experimenting on them, mm. using treatments that are unproven uh, in their in their positive effects and proven in their harms um, on these people and especially on children. Right, but the the growing number of voices of of what are called detransitioners, right, people who uh, begin the transition process uh, medically uh, from one gender to another, and then realize that, in fact, uh, the real problem is something entirely different, often some past uh, trauma or 
other psychological issue that had been glossed over. And that when they address the real problem, the, the gender issues go away. And, uh, and then they're left with the irreversible effects of these uh, hormones that they've been taking or surgeries that have disfigured their bodies. They're left uh, permanently sterile. Uh, you know, among many other things, uh, plus with the, the long-term medical side effects and risks of these quote-unquote treatments that, that they've been uh, recommended to, to undergo. It's really, it's really a tragedy. Um, but, but, but back to the, uh, the actual question at hand, which was why, I mean, it was just, I was just using it as an analogy of, you know, of things that, that we never thought we'd have to be called on to defend because mm. it just seemed obvious. Mm. Well, I think parental rights is among those things. I mean, it's just been obvious throughout human history that uh, the biological parents of a child are the ones who have the responsibility and the authority to raise that child, which includes the authority to make decisions about that child's education, uh, how, to, how to raise them, which values to teach them, and so on. And it's really only in, in recent, more recent times that that has been extensively questioned. And so that's why in the book, I realized that in order to really tackle this question at its heart, uh, I had to try to give an explanation of why the relationship between biological children and their parents matters in and of itself, why that relationship naturally involves, naturally confers on parents certain responsibilities uh, and the corresponding authority to raise their children in line with their beliefs. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, one way that I put it in the book is, you know, it's almost like, again, trying to answer the question that not long ago, everybody would have thought would be an obvious one. Well, wh why do I get to take my own baby home from the hospital? Right. Why, uh, why do we presume that, you know, if you have a biological child that you should be able to bring that child home and, and raise that child, which we do still presume in our society, right? Unless parents are clearly unfit, um, they are automatically considered to have, you know, custody and, and rights uh, to bring their children home and, and raise them. Uh, but why, right? Why not redistribute children to the prospective parents that seem to have the best credentials as parents, right? This pr the prospective parents who are the best educated, have the best resources, live in the best neighborhoods and, and so on. What wouldn't that be better for children than subjecting children to this natural lottery where they get stuck with whichever parents happened to biologically conceive them? Uh, and there are, there are in fact, liberal theorists who, who argue for some kind of reshuffling of, of children in this way. Uh, but most people are not going to go for that, right? That's a little bit too far reached to have, any kind of appeal, right, to the broader public. But theorists who argue in, you know, slightly more limited ways about saying, well, you know, we have to balance concern for the well-being of children with uh, protection of parents' legitimate interest in raising children in accord with their own values uh, and so on, right? They're going to seem a little bit more anodyne, a little bit less scary than these, you know, broad and, and kind of crazy, you know, schemes for communal raising of children or redistribution of children to the would-be parents deemed most competent by 
the state. But that's really what it comes down to. You know, why do I get to bring my own baby home from the hospital? And mm -hmm. what I argue is that it's because that biological parent-child relationship creates a real bond, uh, a unique relationship that is different from any other kind of relationship that creates uh, a permanent and intimate link between the child and biological parent, because it's only that link that I have to my biological parents that literally makes me exist and makes me be who I am in the strongest possible sense. You know, lots of people have had influences on me in the course of my life, but I'd still be essentially the same person, even if I hadn't encountered those, those other people. But if I had been conceived by different parents, I just wouldn't be me. I wouldn't exist, right? So there's nothing really as fundamental in a way as that most basic bond between a biological uh, child and his or her parents, because it's that bond that literally makes you who you are. And, and so that strong bond is what makes the biological parents the ones with the strongest connection to the child and, and the strongest responsibility to care for the child. And then the authority that parents have to direct their children's upbringing is just the flip side of that personal obligation uh, to basically finish what they started, right? Parents started the task of bringing a child into the world when they conceived that child. But raising a child to maturity, bringing a kind of full human into the world is, is more than just about physical gestation and birth. It's also, there's also a very long period of of moral, psychological, and spiritual gestation that human beings have to go through before they're fully mature. And so, you know, Thomas Aquinas has a great analogy where he talks about the family as a kind of spiritual womb, which would be analogous to the physical womb of the mother. And just as it's natural for a child to be gestated in the, the physical womb of his own biological mother, it's just as natural for a child to be gestated to full human maturity within the spiritual womb of the family. You give a very moving um, hypothetical figure and a character in your in your uh, chapter, parental rights as conscience rights. And you talk about, I'd like to connect the figure of Diana, who you just talk about. She's a single, she's a hypothetical single mom in New York City who's raising a child called Leah, a daughter called Leah. And I wonder if you could connect Diana with, you talk about the the, the integrity of the parents that when, they, when you undermine the parental authority or you're, that's a sort of that is a violation of the human rights or the the dignity of the parent in a way that is unique a rather unique assault on on autonomy that which, which these advocates claim to care about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So in that hypothetical, uh, which is it's actually not so hypothetical. I'm sure there are, are many yeah. women who are in you know precisely the situation of this hypothetical Diana that I that I mentioned in my in my book, whose whose daughter Leah is. Um, being presented with the kind of very aggressive, comprehensive sex education at school that is uh, presenting her with you know graphic portrayals of a variety of solitary and mutual sexual acts and and uh, telling her, encouraging her to do things like you know explore her body through masturbation or engage in quote unquote you know safe uh, activities like sexting uh, with um, 
her boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it might be. That's safe uh, sex, right? <laughs> right. You know, uh, uh, things like that, right? Or you know, basically exposing you know children as young as you know ten or eleven years old to content that that you know might make many of us uh, uh, squeam <laughs> a little yeah. squeamish if we if yeah. we read it, right? And if you look at these textbooks, you read them and start you you start to get you know blush and feel embarrassed when <laughs> you read these things and that they're being read to ten year olds, right? It's very graphic. Quasi pornographic things, and and so this mother, um, you know, might object to this form of of sex education, and you know, want to preserve her child's innocence, want to teach her that sex has a greater meaning, that it's not just about pleasure, but that it's for marriage and family, and is to be saved, you know, for your true life partner, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but you know, is unable to do so because the school is indoctrinating her child with this this other um, liberationist view of of sexuality. Uh, but you know, as a as a single mom, uh, Diana can't homeschool, um, right. and as somebody without you know without any money to spare, doesn't have money uh, to send her child to any other school. So Diana's stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? <laughs> she ha- she's by legally required to send her child to, to school or educate her in some other way. The only option available to her is to send her to the public school because she can't afford anything else. Exactly. And so she has no other option but to allow her child to be placed in an environment which she thinks is extremely harmful. And I think, you know, to, to bring this home, you know, imagine that um, there were an example in which in school – uh, children were being exposed to a serious illness. I mean, just think of the coronavirus situation. Mm. You know, imagine if you, if a parent were concerned that their child, you know, um, could be susceptible to a, a serious case of the coronavirus and so wanted to keep the child home from school uh, to prevent that, um, but instead was forced to send the child to school and, and you know, basically put them in and physical harm's way. Well, you'd say that that's outrageous, right? Um, uh, or if if there were, you know, some uh, something in the school lunches that uh, you know was harmful, uh, that the, that the parent thought was harmful to the child, but you know, every child going to the school was required to eat the same school lunch or something like that. You know, the uh, um, you'd think it would be an outrage if if the parent were required to send that child to school and expose the the child to these physical dangers, right, to, to her physical health. Well, why aren't we at least equally outraged that the child is being exposed to serious dangers to her moral health um, and, and potentially also physical health when it comes to these questions of, of sex education? But, um, you know, we, we certainly would want to protect parental rights in the physical health case. Well, we should also protect them in the, the case of concerns about moral health, um, like this, you know, this sex education uh, case that I mentioned. Again, not so hypothetical because my description of the curriculum was also based on the reality of what New York City's sex education curriculum includes and the fact that there's no parental opt-out except for a limited number of classes that um, teach about forms of uh, of artificial contraception. Yeah, so this is a very elite view. The, 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 the Gutman view is an elite view that you, you're, if you're too poor to send your, I mean, she's not stating this, but it's implicit that if you're too poor to send your child to a private school and you don't have the wherewithal to homeschool, that that in effect your your child becomes the state's property. 
and in, in terms in terms of the, the in terms of the agenda that's being pushed that there's no there's as you say there's no opt out it's, if it's if it's it's not just sex education it's pervasive throughout the curriculum that's um, right i mean uh, somebody like gutman would basically say um sure you have the right to teach your children whatever you want outside of school hours mm. but when the child's in school um you know that's the time when the kind of shared educational authority of of the state and of professional educators takes over and you have no say over what your child is, is being taught in the school. Are you finding during the, during, in effect, because of COVID and the stay at home orders and the fact that schools are, are the, 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 the brick and mortar schools are closed, but the, but the online education after fashion continues, are you getting any sense that parents are starting to wake up to what's actually being taught because they, before they could just sort of, the default was, well, they send the child to school and assume that the, ch- the child is being looked after morally and physically. And, but are they saying, my God, I didn't realize the liberalism and that my child is being fed. Is, is there, or, or, or is, is there a movement to, do you think there'll be a large backlash in terms of the curriculum in public schools are people going to just start to realize, you know, maybe I can homeschool because we are in effect homeschooling right now anyway. Right. I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard particularly of a backlash uh, as far as, you know, parental exposure to curricular elements. I think the backlash has been much more basic. The the backlash against uh, the public schools basically completely reneging on their responsibility to, <laughs> to be open and teach children. Uh, I mean, not even to be open, but, uh, you know, for a while in the spring, almost no education was being given in some places, uh, even online. Right. And then, you know, uh, this past year that they generally got their act together to do something online. But most places have not opened in person or very many places have not opened in person, despite the fact that uh, many private schools and many Catholic schools have opened safely without any any major issues. Um of you know infection rates among either students or, or teachers or, or students' families, um, but what you what I think what a lot of parents have really had their eyes open to during this time is how much the schools are beholden to teachers' unions and the interests of teachers' unions mm. instead of actually being about what's in the best interests of of children and that the teachers' unions have really just held the schools and the education of children for ransom during uh, during this period. Uh, by refusing any kind of reasonable <laughs> proposals for for opening. Now, obviously, it was it's reasonable to to have expect some kind of plan for protection, mask wearing, reduced classroom sizes, you know, things like that. Um, but the just kind of widespread refusal to to teach, right, to to do their yeah. job, even when there there were uh, proposals on the table to to reduce the risk, um, has just been just been terrible, and it just shows you. Uh, what some of the problems with the public school system are, even beyond the ideology. But parents have also realized, you know, hey, look, like uh, I could, I might be able to do a better job with an online curriculum, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, and homeschooling, uh, or with you know the a local private school or a parochial school, which educates children at a fraction of the public school cost. Of course, then they have to sort of double pay because they pay their taxes and then they pay the the tuition of the of the local school, which is which is also, I think, a, a fundamental injustice. Why should only government-run schools have a monopoly on public educational funding when many other schools, especially now, are clearly doing that job much better than mm-hmm. the public schools are? 
Well, apropos of, of the public school, the, the private school and the homeschooling, I'd like to ask about uh, how does how does Bostock affect private schools? Because it, the, the 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 tentacles of government are reaching into into parochial schools and saying that, well, although they did, I mean, there it's been kind of a mixed bag because there was religious liberty cases about what is what is a religious teacher and a couple rulings recently, right? But 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 isn't it? But they're also saying that. You're you're not immune from the the social agenda, the social justice agenda, the whole transgender agenda. agenda. I mean, how does that affect, uh, say, as Catholic schools or or any or any any religious schools? The the Bostock ruling, right? Well, the implications of Bostock for uh, schools are. I mean, it's unclear what exactly they'll be. It's it depends on how judges are going to interpret the reach of that decision. Um, when it comes to Public schools, uh, it may mean uh, effectively that all schools need to define sex as gender and therefore that any discrimination on the basis of gender identity would become uh, illegal at public schools, meaning that students would have to be given access to spaces like bathrooms uh, or locker rooms or athletic participation on the basis of their gender identity. Uh, regardless of their biological characteristics. So this would, for instance, spell the end of genuine women's athletics um, by making uh, female athletes compete against um, uh, boys who identify as girls, but who still have all the biological advantages of biological males uh, in sports. A number of, of of excellent uh, female student athletes have lost scholarships already for this reason. They were at the top of their game and then a uh, transgender child, uh, you know, biological male identifying as female joined the sport and broke all the records, um, as you would expect, because Mm -hmm. the averages for uh, men are much higher than than for women because they have biological advantages. Um, So that's just just one thing. When it it comes to private and uh, religious schools, they are not directly bound by that, because, uh, but th- they could be uh, bound by it, at least in part, if they're receiving any form of federal funding, uh, which mm. they might be, uh, for instance, they might be getting funding um, to help uh, with the busing of children to the school or with school lunch programs uh, for low-income students and things like that. So to the extent that federal funding is involved in their programming, they might find themselves uh, hampered by uh, this, the effects of this ruling. Um, But even beyond Bostock, I mean, the Equality Act, which is being introduced in the House this week, uh, Mm, would explicitly require a lot of these things. Mm. It would be a great threat to parental rights on many fronts. What what have been some of the Biden, some of Biden's executive orders played into this at all? Well, sure. um, Right at the beginning of his administration, uh, Biden issued an executive order that, um, that basically took took Bostock and extended it um, in, in the most expansive kind of way uh, to say that um, sex uh, should include uh, gender identity and that uh, therefore any discrimination on the basis of gender identity in, uh, in federal programs, uh, including schools, would be illegal. So that's basically already happened via executive order. Uh, but, uh, but the Equality Act, which Biden is, is very much pushing and the Democrats are very much pushing, um, is, and it uh, so, it's, it's going to extend that even further. Too. 
it sounds so benign. Oh well, who's who's against equality? <laughs> well, yes, the the, uh, the the name of the legislation is of course well chosen for political purposes. <laughs> nobody nobody wants to be against equality, right. um, and you know, and nobody is against, or nobody should be against. I think you know, basic civil rights protections um, for people who identify as um, as gay or lesbian or or transgender, but we're not talking about any of that here. What we're talking about is um, is extremely aggressive legislation that, um, well, first of all, it would be difficult even to know in some cases what it means because, you know, uh, by contrast with a category like race, which is clearly evident, right, who is, you know, almost always clearly evident, right, who is, who is black or who is white or... Uh, and so on and so forth. It's it's a clear, physical, immutable characteristic of a person. Whereas something like gender identity, um, I mean, by by the very claims of the of the activist, gender identity is something that could be completely fluid and constantly changing. So how do how do we even know if the if the person that we're dealing with is in one of these protected categories? Um, uh, that that could change by the day, by the hour, by the minute. And it's not, and it's not something, you know, that's necessarily physically evident always from the outside. Um, we have to take people's, sub, you know, subjective report on the matter. And, and that again, leaves a lot of room for um, uh, unscrupulous people uh, abusing these laws to invade women's private spaces, right? Men uh, pretending to be, transgender claiming to have a female gender identity to get access to, you know, women's locker rooms and, you know, places where women are undressing and showering um, and just be in there. Right. And and those, those things have already happened. Uh, So, you know, these are not, these are not hypothetical concerns, Um, but when it comes to parental rights, one of the other main problems with the equality act is that um, it outlaws as uh, discrimination, any form of, therapy that doesn't unquestioningly affirm a person's mm. transgender identification. So if a concerned parent of, you know, a 12 year old who out of the blue, despite never having had any gender identity issues in the past comes home and says, um, you know, I'm transgender. Uh, if that parent thinks there might be some underlying psychological issues and, and would like to get therapy that, that actually goes to the root of this and doesn't just unquestioningly affirm the child's claim to be transgender, uh, you won't be able to find such a therapist because, or, or it would be hard to find them because they'll be, they'll be hiding because the, they could risk losing their license right. for or failing to simply affirm whatever right. the child says. Well, on that note, I'd like to ask, uh, this is a, gets to the, the real foundational aspects of these questions. And this is a very abstruse kind of long winded question. I hope you'll bear with me, but it does talk to gets to the heart of the matter of terms of identity in philosophy. And I'd I'd like to ask you that you and the philosophers, and I'm just basically reading my question. Sorry, it's all (laughs) my stuff, but, but it's, it's, I want to, I want to ask it because I think it's important. So you and the philosophers with whom you are most closely associated, Finnis, John Finnis, Robert P. George, Christopher Tolfson, et cetera, all place a great deal of emphasis and weight on the fact of human embodiedness or bodily bodliness. In fact, it's my understanding that you and your, your philosophical allies are the most forceful critics in contemporary philosophy of various forms of self-body dualism that is articulated or inarticulately presupposed by various thinkers and movements. Could you explain to us 
why you're so concerned about steering people away from believing that we are ghosts in the machine and that most ghosts in machine, that's a famous phrase, or non-bodily persons, mind, psyche, soul, spirits, inhabit and use non-personal bodies. And why does it matter to you so much that people understand that the body is a part of the personal reality of the human being, not a subpersonal instrument? And do you agree with Robert B. George that an unsound understanding of the human person is basically a psyche and of the body is extrinsic to the true self? Under, underwrites, underwrites misguided social liberal ideas like abortion and euthanasia, marriage and social, sexual morality and the like. And could you talk about a little bit about body-soul dualism? And that may seem a little bit abstract and arcane, but it really isn't when you come to these issues of identities. Was that correct? That's right. I, I do think that this body-self dualism is at the heart of many of these issues. Um, and it's basically a denial of the fact that human beings are embodied, that uh, we are, uh, among other things, um, organisms, right? Human, animal organisms. And that our identity as a biological organism is an essential part of our overall personal identity. Um, So, you know, as long as the organism that I am continues to exist, I exist. And I came into existence when the organism that I am um, came into existence. Uh, Whereas on a lot of um, the sort of dominant philosophical perspectives, they either explicitly or implicitly presuppose a view of the person, you know, as you said, you know, quoting Descartes, a kind of ghost in the machine, right? The, The idea that the, that the self is something other than, uh, the body, the, the human organism. Instead, the self is often identified with your, your consciousness, your psychological states, uh, your sort of continuity of, of memories and um, uh, psychological states over time, or they may identify the person with the, the higher brain, right, the seat of consciousness and the seat of these higher psychological states. And so, you know, if that view is right, it means that uh, you and I, you know, didn't come into existence uh, until our higher brains were fully formed or at least, you know, relatively uh, fully formed, that uh, we might go out of existence, um, say, if we have Alzheimer's or severe dementia and lose our higher cognitive capacities um, even if our organism continues to exist it wouldn't be us anymore is that peter singer's view that is peter singer's view yes Mm. Uh, but he's but he's certainly not the only not the only one Mm. um so you know peter singer on the basis of this view thinks for instance that um a an adult pig has a greater dignity and rights than a six-month-old human um because the pig has more highly developed uh, capacities of consciousness and rationality than the six-month-old human does. And this is why he also believes that in some cases infanticide is is justified, uh, even perhaps morally required, uh, and, and why he thinks that uh, killing non-human animals is, is often morally wrong. Uh, he, he's admirably uh, consistent uh, in his views, I mean, he he recognizes on the, the topic of abortion, for instance, that the location of the child is morally irrelevant, right? Whether the child is inside the mother's body or outside the mother's body, 
uh, doesn't matter. What matters is whether, on his view, the child has the morally relevant characteristics that, that ground dignity or moral rights or moral status. And a child doesn't really have those characteristics until, well, he doesn't quite say when, but uh, certainly not as an infant, um, you know, perhaps by toddler age, um, but maybe even later, right? Because it's all about rationality um, and more sophisticated sense of self-awareness and self-consciousness. And, and so you know, on, on a view like that, also human dignity or human moral status and moral rights would be a kind of sliding, sta- sliding scale, right? The, the more well-developed your, your higher mental faculties are, um, the more rights you would have, uh, the more dignity as a person you would have. So, and that, that's kind of the outcome, uh, the implications of a dualist view like that on a, just a basic appreciation of the dignity, the equal dignity of all human beings um, when it comes to uh, questions related to, say, you know, marriage and, and sexuality. Uh, if, if you fail to understand the importance of, of the body, of the fact that we are embodied, um, you, it's hard to make sense of why marriage is any different from any other kind of relationship. And in fact, you know, the arguments uh, for same-sex marriage basically just say that marriage is, is your closest friendship. Um, there's no difference in kind between marriage and any other relationship on, on this view, because all relationships are basically just uh, emotional connections or, you know, connections based on shared beliefs or shared goals, shared values. Uh, and so there can't be any difference in kind between, say, a close friendship with a close emotional connection and many shared beliefs and shared goals and shared values versus a marriage where it just might be a kind of more intense emotional connection. Um, and whereas, you know, on um, the view that I hold and, and Robert George and others, right, the fact that we are bodily beings means that, uh, it's possible to actually differentiate marriage as a different kind of relationship, um, different type of relationship, not just different in degree, but different in kind from friendship um, because friendships unite people uh, emotionally. uh, They unite people um, in mind and heart. um, But it's also possible to be united to another human being via the body. Um, But there's only one way to do that. There's only one sense in which we as humans are not really complete organisms. And that's with respect to our capacity for reproduction. Um, you know, each of us has a complete digestive system and endocrine system and circulatory system and so on. But each of us only has half of a reproductive system, right? The, the organic unit of reproduction is not the individual of the species, but the mated pair, right? The male and female uh, joined together. And, and so literally, right, male and female can become one flesh, right? That biblical, the two will become one flesh, turns out is, is not just poetic. It's, uh, it's actually reflecting a literal biological reality mm. that occurs. Um, and that helps to explain why marriage has, in fact, traditionally been understood as different in kind from friendship. Not just your number one friend, but, um, but something distinct. Uh, something distinctly, uniquely all-encompassing as a relationship because it unites people not just at the level of mind and heart, but also truly at the bodily level. And it does so in a way that can also bring 
pull new human beings into the world. Um, and that involves then, you know, and here comes the parental rights piece, yes, um, very, very oh. serious uh, obligations toward those children who are the fruit of one's one flesh union um, with one's spouse. Um, and so, you know, th there's also a way in which recognizing the, the rights of children and the ways in which uh, the needs of children can be uniquely met um, by being raised in an intact biological family by their married biological parents, that it becomes the kind of flip side of a lot of traditional sexual ethics, uh, where you realize that traditional sexual ethics is also very much about protecting children by ensuring as much as possible that whenever a child is born, not only the mother is present, but also the father, and that both of them are committed to each other in a stable relationship so that then they can raise that child together. And thus the child has um, the love of both biological parents there present, uh, has access to and knowledge of those biological parents, which give a child a, a deep sense of his or her own identity. And by you know, seeing that, seeing themselves reflected in, you know, various traits that their parents or extended family have. And, and when children, you know, lack that access to and love of their biological parents for whatever reason, right, sometimes tragedy prevents that from happening and, um, and things like that. Or sometimes, you know, people irresponsibly have children in, in circumstances where they're then, you know, not, not able to, to raise them themselves. Um, but what you find with children uh, who are not raised by their biological parents is that they uh, are often, they often have questions about their identity, are more confused about their identity because they, they don't have that access to their biological heritage, um, that they are often um, plagued uh, by the sense that they are unworthy, um, that they are not lovable uh, because uh, they fear that the fact that their biological parents are not raising them is a reflection that their biological parents didn't want them, didn't care about them, abandoned them. Um, and, and what is often very helpful uh, in many cases of, of adoption is when was when children can come to understand that the reason that they were placed for adoption was that their biological parents loved them and wanted them to have a better life, not that they were indifferent to them or abandoned them or, or didn't care about them. Um, so, you know, these are all very real things that help us to understand why the, this kind of natural family structure of married biological parents with children um, corresponds to deep needs of children. That's very helpful. And I, I just want to remind listeners at this point that we are talking today with Melissa Muskella, author of the book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education and Children's Autonomy. And I wanted, to, it was interesting, you mentioned Stephen Macedo, or Macedo, Macedo, and you and Robert P. George and Peter Singer, all from Princeton, and you all have very different views. And it's really fascinating that one university has produced such a, a wealth of philosophical heft on very controversial issues. That's it's quite quite something. I think, I think Amy Gutman might have been an undergraduate at she is, she was associated with Princeton in the past, yes. Okay, so what is a university should be, right? It should be a place where you can have robust dialogue and disagreement on very controversial issues. Yeah, I think that's that's real credit to Princeton that it produces such a such a, a body of work on, on on these issues or so many issues. It's pretty impressive. Um, I wanted to say uh, when you you discussed Mikado and you discussed 
uh, Gutman, could you discuss the two other thinkers, Eamon, Cal- Eamon Callan and William Galston? And Galston's kind of a, a very interesting um, answer to many of the others that you that you discuss. He's he's sort of an odd man out, is he, or or is that not correct? Right, so Galston's a different kind of liberal, right? So uh, uh, Amy Gutman, Stephen Macedo, Eamon Callan, they're all uh, Rawlsian liberals, right? They follow the the liberalism of John Rawls, which uh, we discussed a little bit a little bit earlier. And so Callan's views are are very much uh, similar to those of of Gutman and Macedo, uh, he doesn't want to completely deny uh, parents' rights. I mean, he says things like, you know, of course, the state shouldn't be able to tell parents that they should, you know, buy their musically talented child a piano instead of taking a trip to Disneyland, uh, right? He would re- recognize the, the right of parents to make such decisions, even if he thinks that they might be the wrong ones. Uh, but, you know, like Gutman and Macedo, he would argue that um, it's beyond the scope of parental rights to shield children from exposure, sympathetic exposure to diverse worldviews and perspectives. Uh, he also uh, would uh, not be in favor of, of rights to, to homeschool and would want to limit the ability of private schools to determine their own curriculum in order, again, to make sure that all children receive the kind of exposure to diversity and education for democratic citizenship that he thinks is, is necessary. Uh, so, you know, a lot of that uh, relates to things that we've talked about before. Now, Galston, um, as I said, is a different kind of of, of liberal who uh, I think goes back to the, the sort of tradition of, of, say, John Stuart Mill, which is a tradition that actually thinks that a big part of liberalism is uh, recognizing how important diversity is for liberal society. And so uh, Galston is much more sympathetic to claims of parental rights uh, because he thinks that the, the kinds of proposals that people like Gutman and Callan and Macedo put forth would actually undermine diversity in society in a very serious way. And, and the Rawlsian liberals are not apologetic about that. I mean, Stephen Macedo explicitly says, you know, we, we need to recognize that uh, if we take seriously this task of educating for liberal democratic citizenship that, you know, this version of education is going to be more compatible with some ways of life than others. And, you know, that means that uh, maybe some ways of life, perhaps, you know, fundamentalist viewpoints and so on will end up dying out, or it would be difficult for parents to pass those views along to their children successfully um, because they're just going to be so contrary to, uh, you know, what's kind of in the Kool-Aid at school and in the broader culture. And so, uh, and and Macedo says, well, that's just that's just the way it works, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, the illiberal among us will will naturally die out as we succeed in the the program of liberal education for all children. Uh, whereas Gulston uh, is much more concerned about that, right? He he thinks that even you know what many might consider to be uh, quote unquote illiberal ways of life uh, may actually be important uh, for the health of a democracy and that we may have things to learn from these quote unquote illiberal ways of life. And so, as I said, it sort of harkens back to the idea of John Stuart Mill that uh, we really need a society in which uh, all perspectives can be discussed freely. Uh, all perspectives have a seat at the table. And, and John Stuart Mill for that reason is actually 
opposed. He was actually opposed to public education. He, he thought that surprised. there should I be public funding. To read that in your book, that was fascinating. I really didn't realize that on that basis that he said, "Well, this is going to be too much uniformity if we have right. national schools." Right. I mean, I think Mill very realistically recognized that there's no such thing as neutral education, and that if you have a government-run school, then you know whatever ideology is dominant in society or dominant among elites of society is the ideology that's going to be passed on in the schools. And he didn't want that kind of homogeneity. So his suggestion was that, you know, given the, the importance of the education of future generations, that public funding should be allocated for that to make sure that all children do have access to an education, even if they don't come from wealthy families. But that then there should be a multitude of institutions that provide that education um, and that it shouldn't be the state um, that would run them. I mean, he would say, you know, even he wouldn't even want the state to be one of many options, but he would say, okay, well, if you do have the state in the business of providing education, at least it, it should be on an equal footing with multiple other options. But his preference would be that all the educational options would be private. The parents would choose how best to educate their children, which schools send them to, or whether to educate them at home. And then that, you know, you would ensure that children are receiving a basic education uh, in, you know, basic academic subjects through some standardized uh, examinations, for instance. But again, he was cautious and said, you know, examinations should only be about sort of hard facts and things like that. Nothing that is sort of prone to ideological bias or, you know, no, no values should be included in the education uh, testing, right? It should just be, you know, things like you know, reading skills, math skills, uh, knowledge of science, um, non-controversial facts, uh, hmm. not values. Well, one thing that's come out since your book was published, and I think in particular makes it even more important, is is that leading legal scholars are now actually arguing. They're not even saying, well, this is public schools, or, or this is important that this happen in public schools, but Elizabeth Bartholet, I'm going to pronounce it Bartholet, Bartholet, I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to spell it for listeners. Elizabeth, B-A-R-T-H-O-L-E-T. Elizabeth Bartholet, a Harvard law professor, wrote this, to me, infamous, but influential article, a 2020 Arizona Law Review article entitled Homeschooling, Parents' Rights, Absolutism versus Child's Rights, Child Rights to Education and Protection. And I'm going to read several passages, and I want I want to re- you to respond to them. And she she, she just says, basically, Homeschooling is 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 irresponsible. It's it's dangerous. It's antiquated. It's dangerous in that child abuse will go undetected. And these these and she picks these kind of worst case scenario arguments in her article, it, ignoring the fact that child abuse has been det- is occurs in public school settings. Right. But, but but she writes the new legal regime should impose a presumptive ban on homeschooling, allowing an exception for parents who can satisfy a burden of justification, and it should pose significant restrictions on any homeschooling allowed under this exception. And she goes on to suggest a right of protection from so-called abuse. She said legislatures could be required to enact legislation protecting these rights, that that is the safety of the children. And it would mean that if legislatures impose significant restrictions on homeschooling, courts would uphold those restrictions. So, uh, I, I, I'd like to ask if you could you comment on that, for example. 
about her saying that legislatures should be forced to ban homeschooling and the courts would back them up. And this is just, and you even, and you, and you, you start your book by talking about uh, some German parents from Germany who, who came to this country to seek the freedom to educate their children without being obliged to send them to state schools because homeschooling is banned in Germany and these parents right. sought political asylum here, which is fascinating. That's right. Well, and one, one, one thing that's even more fascinating and telling is that the, the German laws banning homeschooling originated from the Nazi era. And mm-hmm. it's a hallmark of totalitarian regimes mm-hmm. to try to eliminate all the mediating, mediating institutions between the individual and the state. And the family is the core mediating institution, right? So uh, any state that wants to just get the tentacles of, of power into all aspects of private life, one of the first things it's going to try to do is get at the children and separate the children from the parents to the extent possible um, so that the state can indoctrinate the children as it wishes without having to worry that parents might be a kind of counter force uh, to the state's indoctrination efforts. Mm. So, um, you know, that again, as I said, is a telling thing, right? That that's that the pedigree of that, uh, law against homeschooling in Germany uh, is is not exactly stellar, right? It, it comes from mm. comes from the Nazi era. Uh, but you know, when uh, back to Barth- Barthollet's article, and she, as you said, uh, argues for this presumptive ban on homeschooling on on several grounds, and I think her most powerful arguments are the arguments that she puts forward on the grounds that homeschooling allows sort of abusive or neglectful parents to, to hide from state officials because, you know, basically the children aren't going into school. So nobody is, is looking out for them to make sure that they're actually being taken care of, that they aren't being beat up or uh, that they're actually getting some kind of education and so on. And, you know, she gives some tragic accounts of this happening, uh, which everybody would agree is is terrible. <laughs> Nobody here is in favor of of allowing parents to you know seriously abuse or or neglect their their children. The problem with the article is that you know banning homeschooling to prevent rare cases of abuse would be kind of like closing all schools because some ch- because some children are traumatized by bullies um, or are sexually abused by their teachers. Right. It, it, it just doesn't follow that because there are a few bad actors out there among you know, millions of wonderful, loving, responsible homeschooling parents that then we should presumptively shut down homeschooling. It, that it is simply illogical. So, you know, that, that's a huge flaw in, in her argument. And then the other aspects of her argument are, are similar to some of the things we've already talked about. She talks about, you know, worries that you know, some homeschooling parents are uh, seeking to shield children from diversity or, or trying to raise them so as to make them, you know, subservient to the parents' beliefs uh, that this could also be harmful to democracy because the children are not learning to be tolerant of a variety of, of perspectives. Uh, they may not be learning um, about, you know, or encouraged to be active participants uh, in democratic life and so on. And and all of that is actually uh, completely falsified by studies on homeschooling children, 
where what you find is is not a picture of children who are sort of cowed into submission by authoritarian parents or you know recluses or uh, shielded from diversity uh, you know only in their little enclaves with uh, similar uh, people and so on. Uh, you don't find that at all. In fact, what you find is that homeschooling children have you know, higher levels of engagement with the broader community often than mm. public school children, that they're, they're more likely to have a close friend who is of a different uh, race, for instance, than, than public school children, um, that on, on sort of measures to, to, um, to see, you know, how children feel about uh, differing points of view and so on. Actually, homeschooling children are, are very uh, strong advocates of freedom of expression, uh, expression of beliefs that are different from their own, in part because they understand themselves, in many cases, to be a kind of embattled minority. That's uh, interesting. Who's, yeah. And so, and so they, they're actually uh, very jealous protections of, of these basic civic freedoms, and, and they want those protections not just for themselves, but for everybody, including people with whom they, they disagree. Uh, so, you know, the things that Bartlett says really just don't hold water when you look at the evidence. On, on, the, on the question you were saying that, that some school children and homeschooling parents often have a greater commitment to democracy because they feel they are minorities and they realize that it's important to protect the rights of minorities within a democracy, that, that you have to, part of democracy is not, a, not oppressing those who, who, who have different views. And you write exactly. tolerance. I'll just read this if you don't mind. This is a sure. wonderful passage, I think. The tolerance that a pluralistic democracy requires does not imply believing those with different moral and religious views are equally correct or even that they are good people. Rather, it only applies a commitment to respect others' rights and live in peace with them despite religious, moral, and moral and political disagreement. And there are elements in all of the major faiths that can be drawn on to support such a commitment. So, in other words, if you crush all of homeschooling, you're also crushing possible avenues to the very things that you claim to want, Mr. Liberal, you know? Exactly. So, um, well, Melissa, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually right now uh, working on a, a paper that'll be aimed at at some a law review, not sure which one yet, uh, that explicitly uh, tries to respond to some of the the arguments made by Elizabeth Bartholet, as well as a number of other recent law review articles that have, even more broadly than Bartholet's article, questioned the very notion of parental rights, called for a, a restructuring of, of family law entirely in order to uh, remove any kind of presumption uh, in favor of uh, parents' uh, decisions about how to raise their children and instead basically just allow the state to determine what is in the best interest of the child in any circumstances, regardless of what the parents might think. So, um, so yeah, I'm trying to take a, take a look at some of these more recent critiques of parental rights, um, both in general and with regard to education and homeschooling and explain uh, the flaws in those arguments. Are they using Rawlsian arguments or are they or using new arguments that are, that, that you, they're having to constantly, I'm sure you're probably having to constantly educate yourself about, I mean, not that not the you need to educate yourself because you're an expert, but I mean, to just, just keep your pulse on, I mean, keep your finger on the pulse of all these. What are, what are their arguments that they're advancing? Is it well, mostly that- The arguments are not explicitly framed as Rawlsian arguments, so they're different in that way from the ones that I address in my book. Uh, nonetheless, the, the actual content of the arguments is, in many cases, effectively indistinguishable 
from some of the ones that I address in my in my book. They're they're worried about uh, the children's well, you know right I... to autonomy, uh, which I address in my book. They're worried about civic education, which I address in my book, and they they make you know they have views about what is appropriate civic education that is strikingly similar to the views of the Rawlsians. So uh, even though they're not explicitly defending their views uh, on the basis of Rawlsian liberalism, they're effectively uh, making the same sorts of claims. Well, with that, I will just say thank you very much to Melissa Muscala, author of the book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education, Children's Economy, and thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. And thank you, Melissa, for being so patient today. I appreciate it very much. And your book is just outstanding, and I recommend it highly to every reader and every parent. 